Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your hosts, Alex Gore and Lance Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm. I am your host, and I am not joined by our co-host, Al Gore. Al Gore is on a summer vacation right now with his family up there in the great state of Minnesota, a much-deserved vacation. So it is just me with the intro here today, but we do have a special episode that we've been saving for you guys. It is titled, The Architect as Entrepreneur, Contractor, and, and Developer. And it's a special edition episode from the 2021 AIA Las Vegas June membership meeting. So this was um, a, a speaking uh, opportunity that we had. We were given an honorarium to speak. We're always happy to speak. So if you guys, if, if you guys listeners out there <clears throat> ever want us to speak to any of your groups, um, we are more than happy to do it. Just reach out to us at LMC at F9productions.com or AKG at F9productions.com. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Before we get into it, though, I do have to let you guys know that BIM can be important for your project, but it's not the only thing you need for your next project. That's why it's important that 95% of manufacturers who offer free BIM files on RCAT also offer another type of data for your project needs. That means that 95% of the products with BIM also have CAD files, are in specification in a patented spec wizard, and or have product information to help you make the right selection. So stop going to a site with just BIM and go to rcat.com to get everything you need for your next project for free and without registering. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Check them out. And actually what I want to do right now is I want to actually share my screen here and we are going to go to the webpage I have pulled up for RCAT. And I want to show you guys something really neat that I don't think you maybe you're aware of. Um, one of the best parts about RCAT is that the way they have their files and, and their data set up so you can easily search for stuff is incredible. So if I'm searching for just Windows and I wanted to, let's say I was still somehow using AutoCAD. And if you are, well, then I would highly encourage you to go to RabbitRocketShip.com, get on that rocket ship, take your team to the next level and, and, and try to learn Revit and teach yourself Revit and take you guys, uh, take your guys' billable rate all the way to uh, the sky. But if you, and so if you do make that leap, you can switch to BIM. So let's say I'm just searching for Windows and I search for, and I click a little drop down menu here. What's awesome is then it only shows me window manufacturers on RCAT that have BIM models associated with them. Let's say also I wanted to see if there's any uh, videos that they have because maybe they have um, some demos right? And look at all these awesome uh, videos that they have for free. Again, there's no registration here or even specs. What windows have specs? So I can start writing my spec. It's so easy. Go to rcat.com. Check those guys out today. We would, you would not be listening to us right now if it wasn't for rcat. We really appreciate their sponsorship. Uh, the other place I want to go right now is to pella.com forward slash the firm. So if you didn't see that, I, I know I went really fast. Pellaluxury.com forward slash the firm. Check that out. Let's enter their website 
Pella is a sponsor of this podcast. And if you haven't checked out what they're doing, they're doing incredible stuff. Uh, let's take a look at what they've got in their Riley edition, right? Um, they do amazing stuff. They, uh, they don't set the limit. Uh, they don't set the limits. They make the limits um, with Windows. So they're always pushing the, the boundary for them. If you're ever wondering if you could possibly use these Windows um, from, Pella, from the luxury division of Pella, in a commercial setting, well, I'm here to tell you that you absolutely 100% can. So there's plenty of examples of that. It's not just for residential. You can use it for commercial uh, projects. Um, we, we, we often spec Pella. I have Pella in my house. I, I just can't recommend those guys enough. So again, go up to Pella.com forward slash the firm, check them out, get in touch with them, see what they can do for you. Here's a perfect example, right? Uh, basically, this is, uh, the architect is Enid Architects, and this is in Pennsylvania, and this is a commercial project. So, if you're, if you're on the fence about whether you could use any kind of Pella windows, especially the luxury brand, in a commercial setting, you think it's only limited to um, residential, it is not. But also look at what they can do in a residential setting, right? They do some amazing work in a residential setting. This is an incredible house down here. So, just... Check those guys out. Um, they're a huge sponsor for the firm, and we would love it if you guys um, check them out through the link so they can track that and continue sponsoring us. Um, without further ado, I would like to basically get into the episode here. So again, today's episode is uh, a special presentation that we gave, and we hope you enjoy it. All right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm James Horvath, and your 2021 president for the AI Las Vegas chapter. Again, I'm excited to welcome everyone. We have a great presentation tonight. Uh, tonight's presentation has been put together by our EPYAF committee for AI Las Vegas. Before I get, any, in, uh, get into the introductions for the co-chairs, I'd first like to say a few thank yous to our evening sponsors. Tonight is brought to our members through sponsorship of our visionary sponsors. They are NIT Studios, Nevada Sales Agency, the Penta Building Group, and Clyde Jubal Walls, as well as our platinum sponsors, Harris Consulting Engineers, TJK Consulting Engineers, Bergman Walls and Associates, and Grand Canyon Development Partners. <clears throat> our EPYF's purpose, which is the Emerging Professionals and Young Architects Forum, purpose is to plan and to initiate programs that will benefit AIA's young architects and associate members by providing educational and social outreach that add to their experience, knowledge, and engagement in the AIA. This committee is co-chaired by Brandon McLaughlin, as well as Joe Miller, who I'd like to introduce and turn the presentation over to tonight. Brandon? Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, the month has come to highlight the AIA Las Vegas Emerging Professionals and Young Architects Forum, otherwise abbreviated as EPYF, a long acronym, but here we are. Uh, my name is Brandon McLaughlin, and I'm tasked with leading this diverse group of thinkers, learners, and future leaders in our industry, ranging from recent graduates all the way to licensed less than 10 years. Uh, I'll highlight just a few ways we achieve this. Um, the strategic mission that James read off, uh, and a little bit, of, a few of us are still reminiscing from last night. It was the first time in over 15 months we had some fun together. Uh, many folks can probably remember um, 
on this call can remember coming up in the industry and the start of their career and, and a lot of the people they were friends with at the time or going through similar experiences with are now lifelong friendships. And some of those um, were curtailed here by the AA Las Vegas. So last night we had our first in-person event at Nevada Brew Works. We had over 25 people there. Um, and it was a good experience to get younger folks back out of their offices and sharing some of those camaraderie building things that we haven't had in the last year. Um, as a committee, um, I mentioned though, it's important to us to grow the future. This is why we're looking at things such as mentorship. Uh, that takes on many forms right now. We've got a small but successful young architects, two fellows informal mentoring going on and an exciting uh, plan in place for emerging professionals to connect with recent graduates and the opportunities there um, in partnership with AIS at UNLV. Last is licensure support. Uh, our committee is a huge proponent for supporting licensure candidates and supporting them by connecting them with resources to attain that milestone in their careers. Uh, we see this not only as growing their abilities, but also growing the responsibility or the profession in a responsible way. To achieve this, we are constantly looking for um, group study opportunities, as well as how do we make the best information available through ARE prep materials as a chapter. Um, and if you're a testing candidate, I'll just say, uh, if you need support, please feel free to contact Joe and myself. I know we're working on a few initiatives right now and we're just, we would like to get a pulse on, on who is trying to get connected to that milestone right now. So before I go over to Joe, I just wanna uh, to introduce our speaker. I wanna take a moment to discuss why, why Lance, why the speakers maybe that we chose tonight. Um, and as much as many of you know, architecture is a profession of passion. Um, Tonight will be a great example of forging your own path based upon your interests. So as you listen tonight, if you're late in your career, reminisce about the early part of your career. If you're early in your career, listen to and reflect on your passions, profession. Think of the courage it'd be to take a bold or be bold in pursuing your passion. So let today's speaker give you insight to how these two individuals took the risk and are creating the life they wanted. So again, feel free to connect with Joe and I. We've got a lot, a lot of things in the queue right now. We're still trying to come out of um, pandemic planning. So uh, we're excited for all the things ahead. Uh, our committee meets the second Wednesday of every month, and we'd love for more people to join us. Thank you. With that, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. So tonight I have the honor to introduce two young architects from my alma mater, North Dakota State University. So first we have Lance Psycho. Lance has over 20 years of construction experience working in the field as a carpenter and, and an independent contractor. He obtained a AAS degree in building construction technology, bachelor degree of environmental design, and a master's degree in architecture. His hands-on construction experience and design background enables him to design and build sophisticated and complex designs. Next, we have Alex Gore. Alex, like many of us, grew up obsessed with Frank Lloyd Wright. He joined the National Guard and while in college earned a master's degree in architecture and another master's degree in construction management. After college, Alex worked for Daniel Liebskin before teaming up with Lance and starting their own firm, F9 Productions Incorporated. As a reminder, if you have any questions tonight for Lance or Alex during the presentation, please use the questions feature in Zoom and we'll get to them at the end. So Lance and Alex, thanks for joining us. Take it away. Yeah, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Yep, we're going to share our screen. Um, it, it, 
this is a great opportunity for us to kind of go back at, you know, how we started in our development process. We think that some of the things we've done are slightly different than a traditional architecture firm. Um, one of the main reasons why is uh, we started our firm young and we started it off in the recession. Uh, like mentioned before, I worked for Liebskin and the firm just got decimated in 2008. I think 11 of the 50 people in New York got laid off. I was one of them. And Lance uh, got decimated also here in, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, a lot of people are familiar with, you know, architects as architects, um, which is something that we do, but we won't kind of go deep into that. We're going to talk about maybe some of our offshoots and what we've done. Yeah. Uh, and before we kind of really get into the presentation here, I, I know there was four points that uh, we wanted to kind of touch on. We will with, with a broad brush, but I just wanted to reiterate them. So number one, starting an architecture firm as a young, young professional. Um, Alex and I started very young. I was uh, 25. I think Alex was 23 when we started the firm, which, which is extremely young. Um, how we navigated the rise of a growing company, starting with just us two, and now we've morphed into about 15, if you include our construction arm. Uh, and then our thoughts, thoughts about mentorship, uh, both as a mentee and a mentor. We had mentors when we were coming up and, and getting licensed and pursuing other kinds of work. And then as, long, as we've grown, there's been plenty of mentees that have come along and, and that, we've, that we've helped along the way. Um, and then some insightful stories. If there's anything that um, you guys see as you're watching this and you want to just take a note and ask us later, we love to answer those kind of questions. All right. Is it going? I think I got it. Perfect. Oh. Oops. Uh, so one of the first topics we want to talk about is <clears throat> the architecture is entrepreneur. So we consider ourselves um, entrepreneurs first and foremost that do architecture, that do construction, do development, and, and a bunch of other stuff. As you can see, podcasting, you can see our kind of our background um, on, on Zoom, literally speaking, is, is the Inside the Firm uh, podcast that, that, we, that we launched in 2017. So uh, we're going to talk about basically how we started from like a ground up level about establishing that entrepreneur level of things. And, and it really is um, a reaction to getting laid off, like Alex and I said, decimated as to quote what Alex just said, uh, working for firms that really only concentrated on, on one thing, right? So the firm I worked for, they only concentrated on doing a very, very high end homes for the 1%. And in the 2008 crash, housing crash, well, that kind of went away, even for the one percenters. So we didn't want to, we didn't feel comfortable starting a firm, just trying to concentrate on one thing, because we never wanted to leave our employees with the same kind of horrible feeling that we felt, which was getting laid off like that, um, and the rug pulled out from underneath you. Um, one of our first projects, the only reason I bring this up is, I remember Lance and I trying to get work in the beginning, and Lance was in actually my apartment, which was right above his apartment, pacing around, um, trying to convince, you know, this uh, developer to go with a young firm. And I finally, I think I wrote on a notepad or, or whispered to him, tell him about your construction experience. So Lance was, uh, was building since a very young age. And then once he did that, uh, the developer trusted us and we, we were able to get this project, which is the first house that we got together. And what was cool about this house was the foundation was already there and it was uh, abandoned because of the recession. So we got to build off the bones of the recession in our new design. If we could turn the camera around um, and see what was built before on the same foundations, because it was basically the same development, it was, it was terrible. So th this was a, a slight step up. 
Um, but going back to the, that 2008, I got laid off first in New York, New York. Everything hits kind of New York first. I remember seeing all the Wall Street people uh, literally going outside of their office uh, with boxes because we were by Wall Street. We were on the 17th floor of uh, Regent Street, which is right by there. And then when I finally got laid off, I, I called Lance probably that day and said, hey, this is happening here. We heard from all of our buddies, you know, SOM, all those different firms were laying off uh, literally like that same week. You should probably think about something, you know, like this is probably going to come your way. Uh, I, I was thinking, hey, maybe I'll go back to school, do something like that. But, but Lance has kids. So Lance and I were talking and he's like, well, I've been building these, these models um, and kind of building for manufacturing. So I'm going to put them on TurboSquid. Um, and that was a website that I don't think anyone uses really anymore, but where you could sell Revit models and at least make some side money in case things go down. Um, once Lance kind of worked for a while through there and he didn't get laid off until the next year. Yep. Um, and then I was basically done with my construction management school and Lance used some of his contractor skills to get contractors jobs and then got a house. Um, and he's like, Hey, you know, maybe you can come down and, and, and help join the firm, but maybe not little did you know, I had nothing else going for me. So I was going to come down no matter what. <laughs> But once we launched the firm and, and, and got that project uh, that we showed you in the beginning, uh, we started again to like thinking about branching out. And we thought about it. This is a weird website that we made a long, long time ago. Sort of a meme website if you think about it because it's like Revit, Revit. It's just sort of a pun on Revit, right? Yeah. And a frog. I, I made the first F9 website. So I was looking into SEO and all that stuff. And it was all about keywords. And I was like, well, what's better than one Revit, two Revits. Yep. <laughs> and then obviously that sounds like a frog and it was just updates on, on BIM and all that. And what's weird about this is that I'm, I'm not saying that this was the best website ever, obviously. Um, but we have actually gotten fortune 500 companies to contact us for work for Revit development. Be, and, and I've asked, how did you hear about this? And this has actually happened a couple of years ago. I think I still pay for the domain name. So even up to a couple of years, they said, oh yeah, we found RevitRevit.com. We're like, okay, hilarious. Um, so know that some of these crazy ideas aren't, aren't maybe as crazy as you think. Uh, eventually we started to grow. Uh, so back to kind of the furniture, all, that furniture side that you guys saw, we, we, we got so much attention because we were uploading so much content that... Um, Arcat at the same time was starting to build out their building information modeling library. And that really provided the backbone of stability and work for us. In addition to maybe like Alex said, landing a house to design in that first kind of clinic that we did. And then just some other little small projects. But once we had that backbone and we knew at a steady amount of work, we've always wanted to obviously then expand when we could, right? Uh, so when we started to expand, one of the first things we did is we tried to find talent to come into the firm to be able to do uh, all of the various kinds of works that we did. And we found that some of the candidates were lacking um, the ability to basically be instantly billable and turn out and, you know, product solid production work. So we thought, well, well, let's get in touch with the University of Colorado Boulder, which is we're in the town that we operated in about 20 minutes away, not, not a far distance. And we said, um, hey, we've been interviewing your candidates. Uh, we think um, we, we want to hire them, but honestly, their technical skills really aren't where they need to be. They're a lot more design heavy, less technical heavy. And uh, we're experts in Revit. Check out all the stuff we've done on these various websites. 
um, a bunch of other work that we've done. Um, we, we'd love to just come in and, and help out, maybe, maybe, maybe teach, not even thinking that it would be a teaching gig, a paid gig or anything like that. Um, if, and they said, well, maybe not in the architecture department, but we do have this position open in the engineering architecture, the ar- architectural engineering department uh, to teach a Revit course. And we said, sure. Uh, so we jumped on that. And with the idea that we would, again, have another stream of income, not just pure architecture, so that we, if, if one of those fell off, and there was another recession we were so scarred by that we'd be able to stand with some strong legs and, and continue moving ahead. And from there, um, we would teach a couple other courses. Uh, we've taught about two or three different courses, but we would see very strong students. And then we'd ask those students to be our TAs. And then we would then ask the you know, great TAs to come work at our firm. So then it did circle back to our original reason of, of wanting to go there is to, to hire talent. And we kind of got this inside leg on the talent uh, at the University of Colorado. And then from there, <clears throat> again, branching out and all in, in the background of, of all this is, is normal architecture firm going on, normal residential, small commercial work, is that we decided to put it together. Um, what we were teaching in school and then when we hire too, even if we hired outside of CU, you'd come into our firm and then you, you'd learn Revit. And how we teach it is basically uh, the same way that we, we would do in school. Instead of just, we, we would link it to projects. We would link it to reality right away. So there is always theory and there's always design concepts, but then it would meet, immediately be applied to a project. And that project wouldn't start from scratch because when you go to a firm, you don't start with scratch. It's with a template. It's with a bunch of different models. So all the models that Lance developed in, uh, for TurboSquid would be included. The uh, template that we've developed and honed for, for real architecture firm would be given to the students. And then we decided to launch that online too. So it's, it's kind of doubling up on what we're already doing to create more legs to stand on. Uh, one thing we noticed right away too was, so in, in 2012, um, we, what, we, what we started to do at the beginning was the, the idea was always that with, with a two-headed dragon like Alex and I were is that if one person could basically be billable almost 100% of the time and maybe the other person uh, in, at the beginning it was Alex like less billable, what we would do with their less billable time is we would try to uh, do one fun project a year. So one of the first projects we did was uh, Alex's original thesis, which is um, a, a house that's up on stilts. Uh, we, if everybody knows, Joe knows this um, from going to North Dakota State University, that uh, it floods every year in Fargo. And so we were coming up on, on 2012. We had been in business then for about two years. And uh, the, you know, there was a Mayan calendar and like, oh, it's going to be the end of the world in the apocalypse. Um, and, and with the flood house, we actually, Alex capitalized on flood season. He got, he got us in, onto the um, front page of the Fargo newspaper and then we thought, wow, we, we can actually kind of make our own press. We can act but with our own, our own projects. Um, we have all of these design and graphic skills that we learned in college. Um, and, and so why, why, how, why couldn't we carry that through into professional practice when, if we have the ability and the time to do it, like I said, with Alex being about half billable or, or a little bit more at the beginning of it. And so trying to capitalize on the news cycle with 2012 coming up, we, we were driving around um, in the Southwest uh, Southwest United States, it's a very apocalyptic kind of landscape. Uh, if anybody's been down there, 
it, it you know, you, you, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of movies that are based on that. And, and we were driving around with our girlfriends and we came up with the idea of, well, why don't we do doomsday dwellings? Why don't we do a series of homes that could, uh, they're exploratory homes, they're conceptual, they, they, we're going to make them look as real as we can with all the photorealis- photorealism we can do, um, but, but capitalize on that. So we bought the domain name doomsdaydwellings.com. And then that was kind of Alex and my, our, our project for um, at the beginning of 2012. Sure enough, it got picked up all over the place. CNN picked it up and then eventually Modern in Denver picked it up. And Modern in Denver is a magazine that's the equivalent to Dwell. Um, so the point of this slide is here in Colorado, or, sorry, yep. yeah, the equivalent of Dell here in Colorado. Um, they, they, they were so interested in the, these concepts that they actually ended up giving us a seven page spread in their magazine, which if anybody is aware of advertising fees back, back in the day, even then about a decade ago, that was about $1,500 a page. Like there's no way we could have afforded that press whatsoever. We were barely feeding ourselves at that point. Uh, so, but we put it out there. And a lot of people picked it up and it actually ended up, again, serendipitously coming back around and, and proving that uh, to other people that we could do really cool stuff. We, could, we, we had great ideas. And then that they ended up hiring us for work. So um, that, that's one kind of tip we wanted to give to everybody as they emerge as professionals is th- think about ways you could capitalize on news cycles with your architecture disaster kind of stuff. Um, maybe there's a, Alex always likes to give out the idea of if the Olympics are coming to town, what do the Olympics look like? Later on in the slideshow, we'll show you how we, we tried to uh, lure Amazon to have their second headquarters in Denver. Um, but it's a, it's a process that actually works 100%. And, and how we know it works is because a lot of times, if I can remember, we, I ask clients how they found us. And Sometimes they'll say, hey, their friend, and they'll be specific. Jane told me about you. Or sometimes just I did Google searches and, and read your reviews. Um, or a developer friend or a contractor. This year, when, when this came out in 2012, there was about three or four in a row that literally could not say where they heard about us. They just said, well, we, I don't know. We just kind of knew about you. And I think it was from the magazine and the press. If you hear things in the background, if someone shows you this, or if you have that magazine... It just kind of filtered in, at least for that yep. year. And, and so this was probably, this was one of those houses. So directly after that, in um, at the end of 2012, it was, it was winter when I went on interviewed for this house. Um, a lot of folks like this, this is a house in Denver and Lakewood, uh, rather, which is a, s- a suburb of Denver. But they, they, they look at those magazines like Dwell, Modern, and Denver. Um, and these guys contacted us and, and ended up commissioning us uh, to design their dream, dream home on this leftover lot. And, and one of the things I'll never forget that they said is they said, we want, um, we want this house to be a landmark and we want everybody to know what the jazz house, when they hear jazz house, they think of our house um, and they think of an icon in, in Denver. So we attribute a lot of that kind of self-published media stuff over to projects like this. Um, from there, after that, we decided uh, to, to open up and do a podcast. Uh, one of the first podcasts that's no longer out there was called Driving to Work. So while we were driving to see you, Lance and I would report uh, record a podcast on topical events and, and stuff like that. And it, it, it got a decent amount of following, which showed us that it could work. And it could work on something that was just laissez-faire and, and, and no real direction. So we thought, why don't we transition that to inside the firm and really basically have Lance and I's meeting of what we're doing, what's happening, what's relevant in architecture, uh, record that, 
and have it go out to everyone. And the other thing that it coincided with too was we're doing, we were doing our first development projects. So it was architect as developer, follow that week by week, what happens, what lessons do you learn? There's kind of one that went viral. It's called don't go chasing waterfalls because we had a pipe uh, kind of burst right before, you know, we were supposed to close on one of the nine units. Um, it was a horrible, crazy event um, uh, that kind of shocked us both. Um, but that's, that's how we again branched out but on stuff that we knew about, stuff that we knew we were doing, and stuff that was relevant that helped grow our firm. Um, and then going back to make your own press. So it, we don't. Uh, we try to do one fun project a year. Sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. So here's another one. Amazon was looking for places to go. Um, I, they had something like eight million square feet. So I just wanted to answer the question: What would eight million square feet look like in Denver? Uh, model it up, had this idea for this, the shape, um, did a bunch of other graphics. It honestly took me about two days to, to kind of do all this. Um, and then Lance hit it running with social media contacts, uh, uh, talking to reporters, things like that. It got on uh, nightly news channels and all that. Um, and again, and what was great about that was someone from Longmont called us up and said, hey, we saw your high rise, but we're wondering, do you do townhomes? And townhomes are our bread and butter. So we're like, yes, that's actually what we do all the time. We do not design skyscrapers all the time. At, at, yeah. Yeah. Um, and to continue on from that notoriety, uh, we've just gotten more and more projects. Uh, here's one that we really like and are proud of. It's um, an office for a climbing wall uh, company. And uh, so then the, so we've continued with that idea of pushing press and making our own press. Uh, my house, uh, my wife and I designed and built our own house in uh, 2015. And um, the Boulder Modern Home Tour contacted us and said, would you like to be on the home tour? And a lot of people actually turned it down, but my wife is a realtor and she thought, great, this could be a great marketing uh, opportunity for, for me and myself. Um, so we took that opportunity. Then we built a relationship with the Modern Home, um, the Modern home Association. And uh, then through that relationship, they contacted us last year and said, hey, do you have any more houses? We're just going to do virtual tours this year because of the pandemic um, or any other built work that you guys in, in the Denver Metro Boulder area that, that, are, that are of interest. And we said, yeah, absolutely. We, we have this amazing house that nobody will pick up with press. Um, we actually ended up paying them, I think a, a, it was like a small fee for them to kind of put it in their newsletter and they didn't do a feature on their website. And through their contacts, Builder Magazine picked it up. So we are, we're really proud to say that we graced the cover of Builder Magazine in January of 2021 of this last year. That was a huge boost. And ever since then, now I think we're doing four different versions of this house. The, uh, at least two more. So th this one has had two babies. So this is the mom and the dad and uh, it's had two kids. Yep. And it seems like, and so I think if you can get on Builder Magazine, that's great. That's more of a traditional kind of media. One other website that we really love and we recommend everybody try to, no matter how small your firm is, if you end up going out and starting your own firm, uh, to get in touch with and start a relationship with is Arc Daily. So this house also got an Arc Daily. And once you get on Arc Daily, if you can get a house, if you can get a project in Arc Daily, you go viral. And it, it goes viral to the point of, not only is everybody like all these different social media um, meme pages of 
architecture and design on Instagram, Facebook, um, TikTok, all of that kind of stuff, start sharing your content. But uh, then the other websites like uh, Design Milk um, and, and Denzanese and stuff, they all pick them up and then you, you kind of go all over the place. Um, so it, it adds a whole nother level of kind of marketing for you that you really didn't have to pay for. Like, so for us to get into Builder Magazine, it really only took about $250 and then us just doing kind of a lot of legwork leg of emailing, coordinating, doing some meetings with the editor, and then ha- keeping those kind of relationships going with places like Arc Daily. So everybody can do it. And we've even shown it like in this slideshow of so far about, it's not about boat work all the time either. It's about concepts that are timely and grab people's attention. Uh, so one of our culminating projects that we wanted to share too is, you know, we started with that little itty bitty duplex and we were just commissioned this last project uh, that we're showing now. It's called Franklin Place. Um, it is, it, it's going to end up being about a $20 million development. Um, there's a church over here, uh, 60 residential units over here, and then a big commercial development. Um, and, and we earned this um, just through, through a lot of hard work and, and all of those kind of marketing um, strategies that, that we've, that are kind of, I wouldn't say um, typical ones um, that we do, but it, you know, it's been a long time coming um, to get to this point, but it, with slow and steady and just keeping at things, um, everybody can get there on, on this kind of level. Okay. So that was our concepts of uh, architect as entrepreneur and taking those chances and doing things a little bit differently. Uh, continuing with that entrepreneur, this falls under it, but is also separate, is thinking about yourself as architect as contractor. And, and, and how did we do that? And what were the steps? Um, so one of the first steps, this was again, went back to do one fun project a year. So uh, when, after getting that initial house that you saw at the beginning of the presentation, Lance and I went out to eat celebrate. I think your family went with us. Just me and you and the kids. Yeah. Oh, and the kids. Um, and when we came back, one of our friends was uh, complaining because we were still in the recession. And we said, Hey, how about you pay for us to build you a tiny house and go tour around? So Lance and I immediately that night uh, bought the website and started it up and then, you know, called him up next week. And he said, guys, I'm not doing this. You just made this up in your head. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but we continued through it and, and we designed it. And I went down to a builder show in Denver and we had this design and it was a dead project and it actually got us media attention. Um, uh, that website for a while was pulling extremely great numbers. Um, uh, so it, it got us a lot of attention that just that way. And if that would have been it, that was fine. And actually there was a lot of up leading up to the point of Alex going to down to the Denver trade show and actually meeting a, a television production agent who then worked for HGTV and, and pitched these ideas to them there. We had done several sizzlers that we, we, we would get these calls from TV producers because tiny houses were all the rave and they still kind of are um, again, capitalizing on, on what just kind of society was doing at the time, what the media was picking on up at, up at the time and, and, and starting getting in on that wave before it crests. Uh, we, we had just so much attention from that website organically without really having to push it. It was just being, having a good idea at, at the right time and having a little bit of luck. Yep. And then a little bit of stupidity too, um, because how it actually got built was at that builder's show, um, there's a bunch of tiny houses and there was just a sign-up sheet. And it said, if you're building a tiny house, write down your name, let us know. So I said, of course, we're building a tiny <laughs> house, which we obviously weren't. I uh, wrote down my name. They called me up the next day and said, we need to fill the last uh, 
episode of Tiny House Big Living. Are you building it? I said, yeah, we are. And they're like, okay, great. We need it done in, in two months. And we go, well, that's going to be extremely difficult. So we had to pull together the financing. Um, these were design drawings. Back then, uh, trailers weren't pre-made. I actually drew up the whole trailer and worked with the engineer to custom make the actual trailer bed and everything that went in it, um, all the shop drawings for it. And we pulled it off in about uh, two months and two weeks that, that we got it all done. Um, and what was great about that was then uh, basically we put it at a, a tiny house village that was renting it out. So it was some passive income, but a big fortune 500 company came and said, Hey, uh, can you build two more of them? Can you build them bigger instead of half of the deck folding up and half of the deck folding down? And, and not to gloss over it. Sorry to go back on the slide again. Just want to emphasize again, this was, this was us getting, getting into media. So HGTV, once this episode aired, it aired every two weeks. And then because it aired so, so, so much and so often, that's where the Fortune 5 company, Fortune 500 company saw us. We didn't even have a website, I don't think, um, up that was getting a lot of traction at that point. I think we had one, it was atlastinyhouse.com or something, but it really came from that extra boost of, of media that we didn't have to pay for besides, you know, we financed the house and then we ended up having it as a rental. But, um, you know, to get on there and, and then have these guys call us, to do this, this next one that is basically on, on steroids, so to speak. Yep. And, and, and you'll see that's a sky deck that folds down. There's railings that fold in and it was hilarious. You'll see, we'll talk about one of our bigger projects that we did. Um, the banker said, yeah, we'll loan you money um, as contractors, but uh, just as long as you're not doing, you know, doing anything with steel. And we didn't say anything, but I was like, oh, we do stuff with steel all the time. We rent spider cranes and, and we have this things fold into a 32nd of an inch tolerance um, and, but, how, and how this ties into, you know, you see the two words up there, building experience. Um, is it, it's relating back to this idea as architect, as contractor. So I know a lot of architects try their best to get some kind of hands-on experience, whether they're working on with hand, uh, Habitat for Humanity, or maybe their uncle or their brother or, or their mom is a contractor or something, and they get to do some work. Um, we, we had always been a big fan of Jonathan Segal, not the actor, but the, develop, the architect developer. Everybody knows him, um, fellow of the AIA Institute. Uh, out in San Diego, who's a developer. It's like, well, we need, we, we know that one component of what he does and how he does it and how he ends up being so successful and being able to control his project, being able to make more, reap more rewards in, in terms of money is that he, he can act as the contractor on these, these commercial buildings that, that he's building. And it was like, well, we're not going backwards in time. We're going to try to go get more experience. So this, this, these building these tiny houses really allowed us to sort of step stones all the way up and regain that building experience as we moved ahead towards architect as developer. Yeah. Um, so some of the things that allowed us to do was exactly what Lance was talking about was build extremely precisely coming down to the 32nd of the inch, designing and drawing out custom spring hinges, having them manufactured in Chicago and, and, and shipped down, which reminds me, I need to follow up on that on a new build. <laughs> and the other thing about building precisely too, is I, I think, this is where I like to say and, and, and prove to everybody that um, if you're an architect who goes out and, and starts to decide, decide, decide to be a builder as well, whether it's architect plus builder or architect as builder or, or design build company or anything, I think that's one of the things you, you should emphasize to your clients um, to every, is that we are, gonna be, we are going to be able to build more precisely than anybody else because we're the architects plus the builder. 
Um, so, you know, you, you're able to kind of raise your limits of what you can do with this, um, so to speak, right? This is us hoisting up one of these big awnings um, that had to be super precise because it had to fold down and, and, and fold back up again. Um, and then you can build what other, other people can't. I mean, the reason why this Fortune 500, Fortune 500 company called us and they're actually calling us again and we're in negotiations with them again to do another version of this that's even more, you know, incredible and folding and glass and, and all of that stuff. They, their, their team, they, have a fa- they had a fabrication team in-house, but they were like, we, we just don't think we can build it. You know, you guys have proven you can build it. So they hired us because they couldn't do it. Um, and then it allows you to also do some architectural acrobatics. So Alex, like, like Alex's bio said, huge fan of Frank Lloyd Wright, kind of obsessed with him. Frank Lloyd Wright was um, a master of the cantilever of architectural acrobatics. If your buildings didn't leak, you weren't trying hard enough, that, that sort of mantra. And it really gave us the confidence, especially after we built the second round of, of, of projects, to think that like, I think we can, we can for sure design it. And, and I think we can build it too with doing some tricky stuff. Um, so the last thing it'll allow you to do for sure is to create uh, spaces, architecture, uh, engineering solutions um, that are just going to delight people. Um, I don't know how many thousands of people these little tiny houses um, affected and helped people, um, just uplifted them. But um, we, we got a lot of uh, rave reviews over them and, and they're kind of unforgettable spaces for people. Um, and then the last thing is obviously execute. So uh, this was a tough build. I think we built it in what, two and a half months, yep. maybe less. Uh, Alex actually had a baby, I think in the middle of it. Yep, that was I fun. was moving into that custom house that, I, that was fun. <laughs> I was moving into the custom house that uh, it was fun for, fun for you, not for your wife. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife and I were just finishing that custom house. If anybody's ever built, designed, built a house themselves. Uh, I have four kids too. It was a nightmare in terms of just finishing. Like we're in this very expensive rental or now, but then we're, now we're in a hotel for the last two weeks. Um, it was very, very difficult and very taxing, but because we wore both of those hats, I mean, we could literally bring the, the model on, on our laptops to, to the job site and, and make real time decisions without having to call the GC and confirm stuff, do an RFI and all of that and just execute. So what that allowed us to do is to be more confident in our architectural drawings, to be able to execute, um, like Lance said, those, those acrobatics that uh, might be foreign or might, especially might be foreign to starting off a firm young and gaining that experience. And this is an example of how we're confident in modeling, because if you look back at this drawing, I, I don't know if you can see my mouse or not, but everything in here, like, oops, Let's go back one more time. The, these railings fold down. You know, the stairs fold up. Uh, things come apart and move. And we did all that in Revit. And that allowed us to then take that to, and, and say, we can produce more in our drawings. We can get more accurate. We can show more 3Ds. And that will help, you know, the contractor. And it will help the client be more comfortable. Um, and from there, we were essentially able to from that tiny house build, the, the profit that we made, we put down a down payment on a piece of land. And that piece of land is what we'll talk about in the developer portion. But it allowed us to do architecture, but not expensive architecture, because we knew how things go together. And we knew how we could create form without creating cost. Yeah, so this is our, this is, we're actually sitting 
we're sitting right here talking to you guys right now. This is our headquarters. Um, on the lower floors are kind of where we house our construction wing of things. We've got a bunch of tools, material, materials, supplies, all that kind of stuff. Our conference room and our architecture office up top here. But this building was a cost-effective building, and yet it still um, looks like, you know, that kind of rock star style architecture uh, without costing, you know, something that only a rock star could afford. So, so building it and build it like it's modeled and, and modeling it like it's built, they kind of started to go hand in hand and they really started to talk to each other in our firm. For instance, um, before we get to the architect developer thing, um, I'm building out a, we, we designed a uh, 4,000 square foot uh, interior tenant finish for this uh, very shishi dog grooming and dog accessory uh, commercial build um, in Longmont. And we actually were awarded the contractor portion of it too. And now we're building it and working with the steel studs and all of those kind of details, you know, I'm going, going from what in the morning, I'll go down to the job site, check on everything, make sure everybody has everything they need, inspections, all of that, talk through details. And then I'm going back into the office and I'm reporting those details, how they did or didn't work in the field. And we're updating our standards. It's giving our architecture firm a whole nother leg up and level of confidence that I, I'm not sure they wouldn't have been able to um, get to if, if we didn't take on this extra kind of uh, profession. So just to get into the nitty gritty, you know, if you wanted to take the steps to get into the leap of the contractor role, what would you need? So one is experience. And um, a lot of projects like that tiny house, we make up. Not everyone's in that position to, to make up a project and, and just see how it goes. But you can request to uh, go to this uh, construction administration. Um, you might even have to, you know, volunteer to go out. Uh, it, once you go out, meet the contractor. Uh, ask to go out and maybe witness or walk along with inspections. Because if you walk along with inspections, you're going to see the things that the building official is looking for. You're going to see the things of, of maybe why it's missing the drawings, how it can help. But also now you're forming a relationship with the city. And the city is the one that's going to ultimately give you your contractor's license. So um, that doing stuff like that, documenting it, what I mean is taking pictures and having notes and then having those references. So now you know the contractor because you talked to them. Now you know the building official. Now you know some of the subs, right? And then you can start to write down those subs so that you can have a list of subs. Then you go and you need to take a test, right? Class C is a residential test. We haven't taken, taken that. We, Lance and I took class B, which is commercial and up to three stories. If you've taken the ARES, which most of you probably have or are in the middle of it, this one is a breeze and it is super helpful and super extremely useful, this how, test. And how many people have taken it besides you and me? So I wanted to make sure it just wasn't Lance and I you know, that, that liked it and, and were different people. Um, so I said, anyone in our firm that takes that test and passes it, you know, we'll pay for the test, but I'll give you 200 bucks. Two other people took it. They studied for a week, a week and a half, um, looked at the IBC and passed it and said it was a very helpful test just to do besides the, the, the 200 bucks. Um, so don't be intimidated by that. There's a lot of resources out for that. California is different. Um, you, this is Nevada. So um, if you're not like California, Good for you. <laughs> uh, California is a little bit more crazy as you would expect. Uh, and then class A, we haven't taken that. Um, that's, you know, you can do, you can do anything. Yep. And the reason why we, so the tests, the tests are not the difficult part, especially if you're taking the ARE. 
what what is what what's what we should emphasize here is which Alex talked about at the beginning was that the documentation and the references. That's the hardest part to getting to obtaining a commercial level license. Class C, you can get that almost any day. And as a matter of fact, let's say you design to build your own house, you can you can just do it in most jurisdictions as the owner. But if you ever want to take the leap to where we're going, where you're starting to do multifamily uh, mixed use kind of projects or commercial projects and be a commercial contractor, then then by all means, um, you need to make sure you can get references uh, attesting to your work and documentation that you've been a part of that project um, as construction administration at the very least in, in some kind of documented way to prove to the building official, because that's who is ultimately, you know, take your test, bring them your test. They're going to need some references. Plus, Hey, here's a bunch of pictures of projects that I had either done a lot of, a lot of construction administration on as an architect um, in that capacity, or I've had had hands-on experience, you know, building, building this building from the yep. ground up. I, uh, volunteering for habitat. Yep. No, that. Did we miss the last one? Sorry, Al. Separate the dominoes. Oh, so just know when you're doing that, create a separate company, um, and then you have separate insurance. So don't put it all under one. Um, put it under uh, a separate company for e even bank accounts. Uh, I, yep, would, I would I would go that far. You might even go. Let's say you have a partnership like Alex and I do. We actually separate the construction bank accounts. Because you can imagine if Alex is handling, if he's building house A and I'm building commercial project B, we do not want to mix up those funds to understand how much money we have in those areas to be able to pay people, pay ourselves, et cetera. Yeah. So what does that do for you when you are not just an architect, but you're also a contractor? Um, so contracting, right? Oh, I'll just go over this briefly because I don't want to take up too much time, but you have to convince the client. Honestly, that's not... Uh, too hard to do. Um, uh, know that 18% of, is this you? That, that, yeah, that's me. So this is you. Yeah. yeah. So like Alex was saying, convincing the client for us to build projects now that we've designed more often than not, what people will do is when we interview them, we make sure to, to talk about our construction experience. We have a, we have a, a little, um, proposal that is our contract at the end of the day, when we go to, we go to sell the firm and everything, um, to potential clients. And we talk about, you know, our construction experience, it, it, it puts them at ease with what we're designing. I think there's still uh, enough of the general public that is kind of uh, a little leery about architects um, not knowing how buildings really go together. Like, oh, they just draw pretty pictures. And, you know, there's a, there's some truth to that, obviously, but then there's some, there's some not truth to that because many of you listening are, are not those folks. Uh, but convincing them when there's a pitch to, to have them give you the go ahead that you're also going to be the contractor. For instance, Alex is going to build a multi-million dollar house starting, I think in August or September. And he was a little nervous going into that kind of meeting. We were about, we were about 60, 70% through design. And it was like, yeah, we, you know, we want to build this house. It's, it fits all the criteria. It's within 30 minutes of our house or of our headquarters. Um, it's a very cool modern house. It's something we're passionate about. Um, we think the fees are going to be great. It, it, it's a great piece of, of architecture and, and construction work. Um, but man, I just don't know if they're going to, you know, they're going to hire me. And then he, he, he's in the meeting with him. And at a certain point they turn to him and say like, Oh, we, we just always thought you were going to build it. Exactly. Sort of thing. Yep. And then this is how it works. Um, so this, these are just, these are real numbers, but uh, you've, you've probably already read through them as we were talking. But the GC fee of $100,000 is ours. We self-perform by putting in windows, doors, roofing, and siding. So on a house that you'd probably get a much less fee than that, 
you gained $150,000 of extra income and you've prolonged the stability of your firm. Because once a construction project gets funded, it is funded. And it normally takes a year to build anything at the minimum. As, as opposed to an architecture project where for the most part, it's all cash that people are paying for architecture fees for, right? That is not financed money. And a lot of people at the end, I mean, I don't know if you guys notice this, but they'll, they'll, they'll kind of limp their project at the very end, barely be paying their bills, get it into the billing department, get the permit, go to the bank, finally get financing. But man, once they get financing, then there's this, you know, this pile of cash that is ready to be eaten by the construction pro process. Yeah. Um, and then we took that knowledge. We learned some really, really hard lessons. Um, we learned how to lose money and we've learned how to save money. And then we turned that in, into a course. Um, and what was great was someone took that, you know, obviously they were professional and they said, man, this should be, really be taught in school. Um, so we thought that was really so now, kind of rewinding a little bit, after the Subaru tiny houses, uh, you know, the uh, kind of display uh, uh, adventure kind of things that they did, we had enough money and we decided to become developers. And we basically did this, what we called Mark II development. And we called it Mark II because we've done a lot of townhomes. So we were taking all the lessons learned and uh, basically applying it to this. So this front building is, is our main office. Um, and then there are six units on the left-hand side and then two units behind this. Um, there's the units on the other side. So we did everything from architecture to uh, being the developer and then also being the GCs for this project. Um, and there's some cru crucial lessons for that. And uh, first is if you're ever thinking about doing it, one thing to think about is how does the loan, how does the land affect what I can do on it? So you're going to have to do a performa and you're going to have to do, a, you know, basically a test fit. And if your land costs are less than, and infrastructure are less than 18% of the total, uh, then it is a good deal to look into. Um, know that for that land deal, you're going to have to put 25 to 30% down. So you're going to have to have that money. And it's a three-year balloon, which means you'll be making mortgage payments that are not that much, 1,500, 1,200 bucks, but at three years, all of it comes due which means you have to have all your drawings done, get it through permitting and have your construction financing because your construction financing will then take over the whatever's remaining on that, right? There's two ways to get loans, um, conventional loans. It's 75% loan to cost. Um, the interest rate is great, three to 5%. If you can't get that, Lance and I couldn't get that. We weren't established enough to get that. We didn't have enough money in reserve um, for that too, because not only is it 75%, you also need more money in the bank besides that 75%. So you can get private and the difference is loan to value. So the loan to cost is lower than the loan to value. So you can get a lot of your project paid for that way. The interest rate is astronomical. It's yep. a lot of money that way, but sometimes you have to do it. Now, if you want to go the conventional route, but you don't have the financial chops for it and you could get an investor, investors want on their money 10 to 20%. So let's say they want, let's say the bank says you need a hundred more thousand dollars, right? So someone has to bring a hundred more thousand dollars in a year. They're going to want to say, I'll say 15% to make it easy. $15,000, you know, made their money on a hundred thousand dollars. If they will agree to that and you can get 3% instead of 13%, you will save more money paying them that 150 back than going with the 12 to 18% interest. Um, and basically to kind of sum up and the theme behind this 
everything that we do, we try to think about if we're going to do something, how does one plus one equals three, not two. So the best example was when Lance talked about we we're architects and then we were contractors, right? Those are both one plus one. Oh, okay. Be a great, be a good architect firm, be a great contracting firm. Oh, that equals two. But once we talk to clients and are able to show them our building, being a developer or a contractor, knowing how things get put together, knowing how Lance can, or I can come back from the job site and it helps our architecture firm uh, execute better, execute quicker, not make more mistakes, get more clients more easily. That equals three. Um, so that's the, the final kind of message we want to leave you with. And with that, I think we'll open it up to any questions. Great. Thanks, guys. So I'll go through some of the questions that are coming in. It looks like the first one is, what do you think architecture practice will look like in 10 years? And then kind of to expand on that, what do you think it'll look like in 30 years? I think you're going to see a lot more automation. I think the, and the writing was on the wall when we switched from CAD to BIM, because the amount of, the, the amount of productivity uh, that went up per person per kind of draftsperson architect um, was almost astronomical. I mean, and then what that did is that allows, you know, if you're a good business person and it really allows you to rethink, do, do I, should I be charging 10% per house? Like at the end of the day, what number really makes sense for me to stay competitive and still eat very well, but at the same time kind of beat my competitors with those kind of fees. Uh, the other one is 3D printing. And I think that's on the horizon. People have seen, I think the, the, we, on the podcast, maybe 10 episodes ago or something like that, we actually talked about, I think the first houses that were in, somewhere in Texas that were 3D printed, um, they weren't all the way, it was kind of a hybrid, you were kind of at that hybrid situation where uh, the foundations and then the first story was kind of 3D printed and then on top of that, then they did traditional like uh, wood construction and stuff. Yep. So I have a slightly different take. I, I do think that automation and computers will allow us to do more work. And a lot of people get scared is like, okay, what's going to happen then? You know, because if one person can do the work of three person, do we lose jobs? Um, I don't think we're going to lose jobs. And it's not because it's a good reason. It's not because we're becoming more productive. I think cities and bureaucrats are becoming way less productive. I think, let's say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe 10% of uh, a project was dealing with the city and their comments. And now it's maybe 25%. In 10 years, it might be 50%. 50% arguing about fonts. To, I don't have to tell you. I don't have to tell anyone. I'm sure they all, everyone has their own story of that will become more of our role. And the architecture and the development of it might become um, more productive. Uh, the only thing I, I would agree with Lance that 3D printing in the last two years, honestly, has taken huge gains. I still think it will be niche unless it can do something to a better finish. Um, because I don't know if the framing costs of concrete are going to compete with, with lumber. And that's the big uh, first principle there. My advice to anybody who is, who is an emerging, emerging professional would be to uh, do what we did in the sense of like, we ran right at technology. You know, we ran right at building information modeling. Alex, when he came down here and I, I was the BIM guru, Alex, Alex was like, I, I hate this. Then he got through one house and he was like, I, I will never do AutoCAD again. I was like, good, let's never do that. And now our whole firm, you know, is, is in that kind of way. And it's just paid dividends. So if you see something like TestFit.io, if nobody's ever checked those guys out, 
go check out their piece of software. Don't be afraid of stuff like that. I think if you can embrace that, it's what it's going to do is it's going to take, if I can get on camera here, it's going to, it's going to take like, if the top, if my top hand here is the old guard, older, older architects who honestly, they don't even touch a piece of software ever. And maybe they don't have to because their principles are going out and getting the work, but you, you young bucks that are, that are down here and just starting out, if you can become the experts in those pieces of software, all of a sudden you kind of balance things out a little bit more and, and you're up towards that beginning part of the process a lot sooner. Yep. Yeah, that's great. Do, do, do you think you'll see more kind of design build firms in the next 10 to 30 years or have you seen a lot of growth in that kind of industry? I think so because honestly, YouTube. Mm. Um, I think that the knowledge, I, I going to mentors and mentees, like, I mean, you used to have to find someone, your dad used to be, have to be a contractor, your uncle, right? Now, the amount of things that you can look up and say, how do I frame a house? Like literally how, how do I frame a house? You watch 10 videos on it. You're obviously not going to be an expert, but, uh, that access is huge. And then once people kind of get wind of the money and how it works and how a contractor makes more than architects, they're going to say, what I'm, I do all this hard work and contracting is hard work. I'm not going to lie. And a lot of it is, is, is people management. Yeah. So then if you get on top of maybe there are some automations that help out. Um, if the automations do take over, if architects don't take over contracting, they will be left in the dust. They will be left in the dust because think about this. <clears throat> the technology of producing will get more powerful, right? So you won't need all this information because a computer is going to help, help you. They'll, they'll hire someone to deal and talk with the city, right? Um, and then the, and contractors will take over architecture. Contractors will take over architecture. Testfit.io is making more money off of contractors than architects. What does that tell you? And Alex has had the, I think the CEO on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah Clif- multiple Clif- times. Clifton, Clifton, Clifton Haynes. Yep. So he knows, he, he's, not, he's not just blowing smoke up of everybody's, yeah. everybody's behinds. So if you don't start thinking about it, you might be, uh, you might be sleepwalking yourself out of a job. Yeah, and and if there's any attorneys that will ever watch this, I know they're gonna. It, <laughs> they, I could see them trying to use that against us. Like, oh, you guys just look at YouTube for like, why not? Uh, we we use YouTube quite a bit. Uh, this last uh, right before we started, I started trying to figure out how big we need to make the rough openings for these uh, hollow metal doors on on the job site that I'm general contracting right now. Is like. Well, I bet, uh, and sure enough, the company itself had its manual in YouTube form. It's like, well, there, there's no weirdness with that. Why wouldn't I, why, instead of watch, going through the manual, why wouldn't I literally watch it? And they explained it so clearly. And then I instantly just went, after I looked at it, was laying chalking walls out, I sent it to my construction crew. I'm like, hey, make sure you guys review this um, and then ask any questions if you have them. They had a few questions. We're like, bam, we're all on the same page. Yep. I, I think architecture and, and construction gets a bad rap because some people don't think it's hard when it's extremely difficult, but on that same vein, it's not rocket scientists in that trades are separated because a common person has to be able to do it. So each one of those tasks can be thought about mastered and understood. Understood is probably the best way. Understood and specialized. Yep. <clears throat> Where um, putting them all together still is hard work, but you can still do it. Kind of what Lance was saying. Great. 
So the next one here is how have you, how have you personally balanced personal aspirations and professional goals? It sounds like you guys both have families. So how has that uh, kind of balance gone? Well, one rule that we've always had is that uh, there, we, there's the, the rule is, is that we don't, we, we don't uh, work more than more than 40 hours a week. We, Alex and I work more than 40 hours a week, but everybody else at the firm does not work more than 40 hours a week. Typically we, we are nine to five or eight, you know, seven to five, seven to four, eight to five, somewhere in there, Monday through Friday, every once in a while, if there is like a, a crazy deadline to meet um, like those uh, Subaru houses, you know, we will pull people out for a weekend here and there. We do try to compensate them handsomely um, when it comes to bonus time, uh, Christmas bonus time, or even we, last year we did a spring bonus. That was the first one that we ever did this year. We're going to do some summer bonuses and, and all of that. But I think it all, all comes down to time, like efficiency. Uh, so uh, being disciplined, because discipline then equals freedom, right? Um, we're big fans of Jocko Willick, and that's one of the things um, that he preaches all day long. And so, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know if Alex is always a morning person, but he's definitely a morning person now. Maybe having two kids helped out with that. I know it certainly helped me out with that. And it goes all the way back to when I was at college in North Dakota State, I was always the first one in the studio and it was primarily because I had to grow up really quick. I had a child when I was in college and I would be there. I would drop Kyler off um, at six. I was at the, I was at the firm or not the firm at the, at the studio before then. And we've just always carried that kind of discipline through. Um, and then if you do that and you do things consistently um, and you do things fundamentally correctly, uh, especially even when it comes down to like emails or correspondence, Sometimes, you know, maybe once a quarter, once every couple months, Alex and I will have to tell a client, hey, just so you know, we didn't respond to your email last night because we do not respond to emails after 5 p.m. or we did not respond to the email on Saturday. And then we also time everything. That's one of the things we did from the beginning. And once we got um, to, once we started the podcast and we started engaging with a lot more other architects who were listening to us and asking for advice or we'd ask them for advice, we were shocked at about how many other architects literally did not know their billable rate in terms of, let's say they put a, put together a fixed fee for a house or a project or whatever. And we're like, okay, well, where do you think you landed with your billable rate? And they go, well, it was on a fixed, I'm like, you didn't time your time just to understand what it took so you could close your feedback loop and understand on the next project, should I be charging more? Should I be charging less? What can I do for efficiencies? And maybe you can talk about the two second lean. Well, yeah, I will. Don't let me forget. The other thing too is, you know, prioritize. I, I've been a part of other firms and, and you might see this in, in your firm or, or might not, is that some exercises aren't worth doing. Um, I, at Leapskin, we would do some exercises that were not worth doing and we'd stay up till midnight doing them. Um, once you prioritize and then give yourself that deadline that you're doing the 40 hours, maybe 50 hour a week, but you're setting like, that's it. I'm not doing weekends. I'm not ever turning on my computer at night, even though sometimes that happens, of course. Then all of a sudden you work through your big boulders first and those little ones, you realize I didn't need to do that anyways. Like I didn't need to do three different iterations. My first one was good. You know, some people might be so young that they, they don't know that, um, but it, it, things like that really help. And then the other thing too is if you haven't gotten the book, Two Second Lean, go out and get it read it. It's all about continual improvement and how to implement that strategically. We do that at our firm. So our firm gets faster 
And basically what's great about it, and I think the secret's out at our firm and now it's out to you is that we are always going to be faster than all the other engineers just because of the way that we focus on efficiency. So we never have that pressure on our throat from um, the client. It's because they see it's not us, you know, uh, they're not waiting on us. They're never waiting on us. So we never get that. It's all, man, the engineers are slow, man. The engineers are slow. Um, yep. Uh, and that helps out. Yeah. Schedule two, two, two last things, schedule everything. I even, this might sound anal, but I even schedule dates with my wife and, and like anniversaries and like, then I never forget it. And I'm never the bad guy. But if you even schedule your personal stuff, and yes, you can be flexible and loose a little bit and stuff like that. I'm not asking you to be completely anal down to the minute, but uh, it really does make a dramatic difference in your life. If you schedule everything, if you understand where you, if you understand where you're supposed to be at, at what time, Alex and I uh, schedule like every, every Friday at 10 a.m. That's podcast time. Every Monday morning at 7.30, it's construction crew meeting time to kick off the week. Every 8 a.m. every day is our two-second lean meeting where somebody is presenting their two-second improvement, a problem they had, how they solved it. Um, and then the second thing, the last second thing, I was going to just give you an example of how, how the two-second thing works for us is, um, so this morning, uh, Ross, one of, our, uh, one of our more senior employees who's been here longer th- than others, he, his two-second lean was, I don't know if everybody noticed, but when you take a, a photo off of an iPhone now, and we use our iPhones all the time for taking pictures of like existing buildings that we're drawing up and then going to do design work or construction work or whatever to it is when you export a uh, uh, image file. Now it exports it as a dot H E I C, which is an insane new kind of file that makes zero sense to all of us. And then you have to convert each file in order to see it. um, Once you bring it onto a PC so he was like, I just can't deal with this anymore. And I was like, I can't deal with it either. So his two second lean today was he goes, all right, I want everybody to pull up their iPhone. And we, most of everybody has an iPhone in the office. And it was hilarious. I was watching Alex in the background because I was, I attended the meeting remotely. Sure enough, Alex goes over his desk. I pull up my phone over at my desk and we all go to the settings, everybody in the firm at real time. And we all changed from HEIC to just basically JPEGs. And that's going to save us. Now, now you multiply that little two second thing improvement over the course of the next uh, five years, next five, well, 12 people over the next five years, over how many photos you're going to take and you can, you know, the improvements are going to happen. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so next is, can you guys talk about your process for testing um, for the ARE and kind of your, your approach to testing and then also your AXP hours? Yep. So ARE was a competition. Uh, so Lance got it done first and he got it done in, in six months. Nope, nope. Seven months, one, oh, yeah. one day. And you got it done, I think, exactly on seven months. It was one day you beat me. Yep, today. yep. So, so I had to beat him by one day um, just because why not? But I'll talk about mine. I think his, his was similar was I'd study in a more for uh, an hour in the morning. I'd study for an hour at lunch and I'd study two hours at night. And it was just a bunch of study. Um, I just had an interview. Um, it will be on Monday morning edition of inside the firm, uh, the, the podcast in a couple of weeks. Uh, and it was with the VP of uh, testing NCARB. at at NCARB. Um, and I brought up some points and I haven't taken the test for a while now. Um, and I got hit on something that I'll tell you, but basically, 
you know, I don't like the way that they compound questions. I don't like the way that they make it tricky with the multiple, um, like pick three out of five. Um, I don't like it that they don't have open book. Honestly, I don't see why you can't have the IBC or the uh, professional practice book. Um, and, and one of the statements was, well, any information that you need that's extraneous, they have it provided. I went, walked upstairs and I said, hey, is that true? They're like, absolutely, that is not true whatsoever. And he's asking three candidate, three people who uh, passed already. Uh, two people that just, just passed. No, no, they all three did. You're right. Uh, yeah, yeah, all three of them just passed. They just, they just, two of them just got licensed. One is just about there with his paperwork and stuff. Yep. So, yep. so fresh on their minds. This, these aren't folks that are like us or they took yeah. it, I don't know, six, seven years ago. So I, I'm kind of out of it. And, and the reason why, uh, you know, I was, I was pushing a little bit was because there's smart people that are failing these tests. And I, you know, like, is that okay? They're not looking, they're, they're pretending that they're not looking at the pass rate and the pass rate has nothing to do with it, with it. The only thing they're doing is deciding what a competent architect needs to do and then asking questions. Um, and because I asked those, you know, where you have to list three out of five, like, are people getting more of those wrong or right? You know, like, because it's, some of the questions are, are tricky and, you know, are you happy with that pass rate? I don't think they should be happy with that pass rate. And they kind of passed the buck and said, that's not, not our business. So, um, if you are passing or going through or unpack, uh, you know, just done, I would get involved and, and, and push back because I think the profession is, is getting a disservice because I, I know doctors, I know other people, I ask them about their tests. They're not the same way. Um, I think it can be improved. I'm not going to bear that battle just because it's been years since, since, since I've passed those tests. Um, I think you, I think everyone's going through something hard. I like hard stuff. So like there might be some older people who say, Hey, uh, hard tests are great. Our test was hard. I, I was in the army. I love that stuff. I love miserable stories. Um, I, I do miserable things to myself um, at least once a month of that. I come tell the office about that. He just that. did a no jujitsu uh, tournament. Yeah. Um, but I don't like hard things that don't lead to making yourself better. And I do think overall, you might be slightly better with the test. Yeah, I think you will, but um I think it, it's punishment in, in a way that's unnecessary. Sorry for that. Rant. <laughs> Holy cow. To, to end on a positive note about it. Uh, yeah. It, it all comes down to the discipline again. So uh, if you can get in the mind, so we pass them in seven months each and I, and we pass them at an early age. I think the average age is 33 and we were see like mid 20, late twenties when he got licensed. So both anomalies in that sense, but I, I think a lot of people can kind of be those anomalies. One guy we have upstairs uh, is I think 27 and he passed. Um, I think he was, I don't know if he was just as fast. I was think it was over a year, but what I've noticed with everybody who, who is successful in their pass rate and how quickly they do it and how young they do it is they all have discipline and they all make it their life for seven to 12 months. Yep. And they just, they just put it in their head. I know what, one of the things I did is I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to be disciplined about this. I'm going to get it done in what I would consider a record time. And uh, we're always competitive, me and Al, but we're also competitive with our college buddies too. Um, that we went to North Dakota state with, and they would, they would tell me like, you know, how long it took them. And I'm like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll crush you on that one. Um, but I, I got in the mindset and the psychological, uh, you know, place in my head of like, I think I'm, then I don't have to take any more tests, right? Like I, I could be done. And I know you have to do the, 
um, continuing education, that's way different. You actually learn stuff from that, um, <laughs> at least I think. And, uh, but, but it was such a relief once you were done. It was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm basically finally done testing for the rest of my life. Um, it's something to be proud of. And the other thing that is interesting is, I, I don't know if you, if other people would be able to do it, but like I got so into it to pass it within seven months is I bought my first house. Um, and then when I was studying for the test, I would match up what I was doing, remodeling with my house with what was on the test. So we took, I think, ARE 4.1. And when it was broken up into the certain categories, like there was a structural one. Um, so I was doing structural stuff on the house and with the tiny house and then plumbing and HVAC stuff. Like, oh, I'm just doing plumbing and HVAC stuff. Like I redid my bathroom entirely to try to understand. And I would just immerse myself in it constantly uh, and, and, and take it that way. AXP was probably our biggest struggle, the experience part of it, because, because we were um, basically residential designers. And then when we would get work that needed a licensed architect with it, we, would, uh, we had a mentor and his name was Jerry Boland. And what we would do is we would say, hey, we got a call to do this commercial project. Obviously, we're not licensed architects. Could you, could you be the prime on the contract? We'll just be the horsepower. Uh, we'll do all the drafting under your direction. We'll come down to your office. We'll do as much of the type A setting as we possibly can. It took us longer to get those points that way. Um, but, you know, that, that's, how, that's a way you can do it if, if, let's say, you're halfway done with your AXP and I was at the time we started our firm, and then you, you need to kind of flush the rest of it out. Um, when it comes to us approving uh, all that time for our people in our office, um, we just, we make sure during our yearly interview with them, their annual review, like to make sure that, are we not giving you enough of this kind of experience category? What are creative ways we can get you to that experience category um, to, to make that happen and, and keep it all above board? And the only piece of advice that I hope someone tries out, um, because it's how I passed my last two tests, was I don't, you know, if you fail, that might happen. But I stopped reading any of the books. And to go back and to give credit to, you know, the person, the, the VP, I only started taking practice tests. And I looked at the question. And I eliminated or confirmed answers only by the question. So I would just search back up to the question and have the question be like the, my only source of information. Obviously some of the questions are asking and you do have to go look in the code or, or see some other stuff. But um, if you think about it that way, because I think what happens is that there's these questions and you go, well, I read this here and my firm does it here this way. So now there's two different, there's, there's the question, there's the firm, and then there's the book you read. Okay, what's the answer? eliminate it down to the question and, and the question will give you the answer or at least that's what I fooled myself into thinking. Yeah, that's great. And I think uh, that's the majority of our questions. So thanks Lance and Alex, and we'll pass it over to James. Thank you guys. Uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Brandon, for really putting this together. I want to thank Alex and Lance again for the presentation. It was a great, uh, great analysis and, and great uh, uh, presentation in, in general um, for tonight and for all of our young architects uh, and inspirational for them. 